But again, thank you guys for gathering with us here this morning at Mission Church. Um, I love each of you, and I appreciate the opportunity to serve along Pastor Justin as one of your pastors here. I love our church and what God is, is doing in small increments in the lives of many um, in our congregation. And so thank you guys for gathering with us this morning. Um, so if you were here last week to catch you up to speed, Jesus um, heals a paralyzed man. But before healing that paralyzed man, there was quite a, an episode, a scene, as his four friends dig a hole in a roof of a house and lower this gentleman down right in front of Jesus because there was no way for them to bring him in through the door because of the crowds of people. And yet the first thing that Jesus does to this gentleman is, is not heal him of his paralysis, but is to look at this gentleman and to say to him, Son, take courage for your sins are forgiven. We were reminded last week that there is a greater work than a physical healing. There's a greater work than the cold being relinquished from your body. Or like me, I have bad allergies during this season and the throat is quite sore this morning. And yet there is something greater than Jesus healing my sore throat this morning. It's not that he can't. It's not that he won't. But there is something greater and that is to be reconciled with God, and thus being reconciled with God, Jesus has the authority to then look at men, women, boys, and girls and declare that they are healed. Ultimately, their sins are forgiven. This brought quite a bit of controversy to Jesus um, on this scene. As many Pharisees, people of the law, people who knew the Old Testament well, they obeyed it um, to the best of their ability and took great pride in their ability to do so. But it was controversial because for Jesus, for a man to declare that a person's sin is forgiven is biblical blasphemy. They had every right to be upset at Jesus for saying this if... Jesus is not God. Yet, being New Testament Christians and knowing what happens, we know that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is God. But within that, we can also continue to read into that controversy here as, um, as it's believed by, by most biblical scholars that Matthew, being the great writer that he is, um, believes that there's now questions to the ability or to the length of that forgiveness that Jesus can offer. Can he simply offer forgiveness as a friend to another friend who has betrayed them, or to a husband, to a wife, or to a family, to a child? Or are there external or eternal consequences for this forgiveness that Jesus is giving and imputing to this man? In essence, how far-reaching is Jesus' forgiveness? How much power is in this forgiveness? Can Jesus forgive some sins? You know, white lies, right? Your wife walks out, she's wearing a new dress, got a new hairdo. Every dude in here says, you look awesome, even if you're lying, right? Because you would rather lie to Almighty God than have conflict with your wife, right? Does Jesus forgive that, all right? But is it more far-reaching? Does he forgive little sins? 
Or does he also forgive uh, what we would consider is because we like to make a hierarchy of sins, the biggies? Does he forgive murder and, and the thieves? Will his forgiveness run out? Can you, do, does each one of us, and this is why I have an issue with our brothers and sisters who disagree, believe that you can lose your salvation, is, is like, do each one of us have a number of sins that he will forgive, and once we break that number, he relinquishes forgiveness? Or is it all-encompassing? Can Jesus forgive anyone of anything for all time? And these are all questions. Haven't you ever considered, brother and sister in Christ, if your sins are forgiven? I think it's a valid question that Matthew is going to, to dive into today. Um, in verse 9, we see it in Jesus passed from there and saw a man called Matthew. Now, the Mark and Luke also tell us about these stories. And in Mark's gospel specifically, um, he tells us that as Jesus is leaving, as he's left this home, that it appears as though the crowd is still following Jesus. Again, at this time, Jesus' popularity has become very well known. Being a rabbi this time was a very prestigious thing. People followed tons of different rabbis, not just the teacher Jesus. And yet there was something um, very mysterious and, and drawing about this man. Um, I used to work for a gentleman who has the power of woo. I believe that he could, he could sell you oxygen. He just had that much charisma about himself. Um, you know me, I, I don't have that, all right? I hope you like me, all right? Please come to church, all right? It's like, but this guy just, I mean, he could, boo, I mean, bippity be the boo and people would be like, woo, okay? Um, Jesus has some, he is speaking with authority. People are drawn to Jesus' ability to put words together, but even more so, as I think that we see throughout the gospel, they were more intrigued with his, his uh, miraculous or miracles or his ability to do magic than they were anything else. They didn't know how that he was able to do this. They were extremely intrigued with him, and wherever he went, they kind of paid the piper and followed along. Jesus, Mark tells us, the crowds are following Jesus. They're pressing into him. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus is walking close to the Sea of Galilee again, all of the masses are hanging on his very words. Because what is Jesus doing? He's still preaching. He's still teaching. Because that's his primary ministry focus. It's not the miracles, but it is the word of God that he is speaking Jesus is walking down this road. He's walking next to the lake, and he comes across a man named Max Matthew, who is a, a tax collector. In the other Gospels, we see this man. His also name is Levi. Um, like many people during this time period, they had multiple names. Sometimes they would be Greek names and their Jewish names. Um, even us, some people call me Baker my entire life. Um, people have called me Eric, and they've called me other names that I can't repeat, all right? But we all have kind of these multiple names that people have called us by, so don't get alarmed by that. Matthew and Levi are the same guy. Paul, Saul, Cephas, Peter, all kind of these names, multiple names that people are given and used at different times. 
So Matthew is a tax collector. It is very important that Matthew is, is hanging out on this sea, probably on one of the major um, trade highways between cities right outside of Capernaum. Jesus, again, this mass gathering is following alongside of him, and Jesus is preaching and teaching, and he walks past this guy named Matthew who is this tax collector. Now, what's interesting about tax collectors during this time, all of us, if I say IRS, or if you have to, uh, well, you should, be um, submitting your taxes every year, you all kind of get a lump in your throat in thinking about those things. But during this time, take that feeling that you have toward taxes and multiply it tenfold. Multiply it a hundredfold. A tax collector during the New Testament time period was considered to be most, one of the most despised of all people. They were lumped in with murderers and thieves, abusers. They were considered to be a professional criminal. They were hated by the Jews. Why were they hated by the Jews? Because they worked for the Romans. They worked for the enemy. Because of their position, because of their relationship with the Romans, they were considered to be dirty, wretched, unclean. They had to hang out with Gentiles, but even more so because they oppressed the poor Jewish people. They oppressed their own kind. They oppressed their own family and friends. How were they able to do this? Well, the Romans, of course, taxed everything. Tax on, on top of tax, on, pop on top of tax, tax, tax. Everything had a tax. It's like you, you walk out of the lake, you've caught a bluegill, there's a tax on that. And so the Romans were taxing, and that's how it would enable them to build roads, to have universities in all of these cities, and for them to get really, really wealthy. So for illustration's sake, let's say that um, the, the Romans were going to tax you for that bluegill for 5% of whatever it cost. Well, they allowed these Jewish tax collectors to then um, double their money, to say, um, charge them 10%, and whatever that Jewish tax collector could get out of those Jewish people, they got to keep on top of what the Romans expected. So if there was the 5% from the Romans and you could get 10%, you got to keep 5%. So these men who were tax collectors, they, they were extremely wealthy. They made lots and lots of money off of their own people. They were traitors. They were not allowed to worship in the synagogue with other Jews. They weren't allowed to participate in the, in the Jewish festivals and the, the celebrations and the feast. I mean, if I say the word Benedict Arnold right now, when's the last time you've heard somebody named Benedict Arnold? Baker, <laughs> right? You haven't. Why? Because within, Jewish, um, within American history, we consider that dude to be a what? Traitor. Immediately. Benedict Arnold, traitor. Even when we hear the news in, in 2016 and you find out that American has, has left America and is now working for terrorist groups and ISIS and, and all of those sorts of situations, doesn't something well up within you that just seems really, really wrong? If I mention the word Judas, the name Judas, when's the last time you've heard a friend named Judas? You haven't. Why? Because immediately comes 
This dude's a traitor. Matthew and other tax collectors, they were traitors. They were hated. They were wealthy. They were professional criminals. And they were despised by Jews because they oppressed God's people. They oppressed their own kind, their own people. So imagine just for a moment that you're in the crowd. Imagine with me this morning that that you're a pretty good Jew. That you're the goody-goody Jew. That you do really good with obeying the law and the, and the, the rules that God has placed before us to live an abundant life. That, that you follow the boundaries. Um, we were playing golf yesterday. Well, I was there. I had clubs, a ball, sticks. I don't know if I played. But I was playing with some guys. And one of the guys that we were playing with, um, he like me, is a goody-goody. Kept wanting to follow the rules. And I was right there alongside of him, but we had somebody on our team that did not want to follow the rules and did not want to obey the stroke counts, and he wanted our, our team to be better or seem to be better than we were. And the entire time, Jacob, I mean, I said his name, Jacob kept saying, um, well, I'm just a rule follower by nature which this other gentleman, initials A-Y, Adam York, whom we can pray for this morning, kept saying, our score would be a lot better if you would not follow the rules. Okay? And he kept saying, you Christians. All right? Imagine you're Jacob. Not that you're Adam. You're Jacob. You're one of your pastors. Some of us in this room are naturally goody-goodies. Some of us in the room are natural law obeyers. You know, we, we, we like to obey the rules. I didn't get in trouble a lot growing up because I was scared to death of my parents. They put boundaries before me, and it's like, I just naturally, I wanted to obey the rules. I hated to be called out in school. I mean, it just demoralized me because I got in trouble. I hated that. But not only did I hate that for myself, uh, or I expected that of myself, but I expect other people to obey and to play, Brother Adam, by the rules. All right? Imagine just for a moment that you're that guy, you're that gal. Any other goody-goodies in the room? law buyer, you know, you like to obey? Yeah, you guys that are shaking your head, no, that's right. You are not, and we're praying for you. All right? But imagine you're, you're me, you're my friend Jacob, our friend Jacob, some of us, and, and you're in that crowd, and you've been obeying the rules, and all of a sudden Jesus is saying all this stuff, and I don't know what he was saying that day. He's like, you see that rock? I made that rock. I mean, I don't have no idea. He's like, one of these days there's going to be this thing called radio. You're going to flip on a button. I invented that, and you're going to be able to hear music out of thin air. I, I have no idea what he was saying, okay? Or like you know, the, the dodo bird. I've invented this thing called a dodo bird. Now, none of you have ever seen it because it's extinct by now, probably. I, mean, I have no idea what Jesus is saying, but you're hanging on his every word. You're watching him produce all of these miracles, and all of a sudden, he walks by a tax collector, and you just see the crowd, in my mind, move away. Walking around 
this most hated man in profession. And what does Jesus say to Matthew, the tax collector? He says the words, follow me. Follow me. I think 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses the word immediately. Now, he doesn't use it per se right here in this passage. I think in the Gospel of Mark, I think he uses it like 35 times. But one of the interesting things that happens right here instantly, look at what it says. Follow me, and he, being Matthew, rose and followed Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus overlooks all the goody-goodies. Man, he, he overlooks the, the guy that is, is crippled and is walking with a limp trying to follow Jesus. He, he's overlooking the other people that are maybe on the mats along that road or, or the beggar with the patch over his eye who's, who's begging those fishermen for food as he walks past that lake. He walks past the sick the broken, the goody-goody, the Pharisees who have all the Old Testament memorized, the doctors of theology. He walks past all of those, walks up to this most hated man in society and says, you follow after me. And it says that he got up, he rose, and immediately, or he followed Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, verse 28, in the same story, Luke gives us a little bit more detail, being the physician that he is, and he says that, that he left everything behind. Table full of money, a job, his business, his way of making wealth. He leaves all of those things behind and follows after Jesus. Continuing on in our story here this morning, it says in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Mark and Luke tell us whose house is this. It's Matthew's house. Most commentators say that Matthew doesn't mention himself. I don't think Matthew is mentioned very much in the rest of the Gospels, other than the story really inside of Matthew's Gospel, because they believe that Matthew was extremely a humble man. The other Gospels tell us that this was actually Matthew's house. So this most wretched of individuals, this most disgusted man, this sinner, this unclean man who is now following after Jesus. Imagine the murmuring within the crowd, the gossiping within the crowd, as now their enemy, their traitor, their Benedict Arnold, their Judas, is now one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He tells us in the other Gospels that at Matthew's house, and Matthew doesn't mention it, again, a showing of humility, that it was a great feast. It was a great party. And we're not, brothers and sisters, we're talking about a, a major celebration that is taking place here. We're, we're not talking about juicy juice, welches, um, wine in a bag. We're probably talking about the good stuff. 
All right, we're talking about a, a major feast, a major celebration, and look who has been invited to this. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So you get this picture that, that Matthew is so um, changed by Jesus and is such a believer in Jesus and knowing, man, if Jesus can change a person like me, then he can also change my friends. Well, who are friends with criminals? Other criminals. Who, who hangs out with the deadbeats? Who hangs out with, with murderers, friends, murderers? Okay. There's common ground inside of these sins. It's, it's believed that they were thieves, that they, like I said, that they were murderers. If there were women there, it's believed that they were prostitutes. We're talking about the scum of the earth, from, from culture's standpoint, that, that gather together. The only people who will be these people's friends are people who do the same things that they do. And now they're sitting at a, the big house for that time, probably in Matthew's courtyard, hanging out around a table, and Jesus is eating with these folks. It tells us here in this passage that the Pharisees, they're not getting close to this probably. They're probably watching this from a distance and come close to one of the disciples, and this is what he said, or they say in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with us? Why isn't he hanging out with us? Like, we know God. Like, does he know, know my credentials? The, these and I don't know, these, these are homosexuals. These are child abusers, child molesters. These are people who hit their mom. Those are terrible people. These are people who beat women. And who, who why is Jesus eating with them? He should be eating with us. We are the religious elite. We are the goody-goodies. We obey the law. See, culturally, whenever you would eat with someone during this time period, it meant that you accepted them for who they are. Eating is a spiritual practice. We see it from the very beginning of Genesis, and we will see it at the conclusion of the book of Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is constantly eating. The people of God are eating. God is constantly providing. There is something spiritual about sharing communion, a meal with someone else. How many times? Today we're having a cookout and pool party. That's my shameless plug. Today, this afternoon, 3 o'clock, at the Rich's house. All right? I'm already smelling the meat that Mr. Fred is making. All right? There is something about spending time together over a meal that breaks down barriers and walls. You know, they say a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. If you ever have to have a difficult conversation, usually it's best said over a good meal. There's an acceptance. There's a relationship building that takes place here. And Jesus is doing it with these folks. In verse 12, again, Jesus answers them. He knows what they're thinking and what they're asking. But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, the Pharisees, they consider themselves to be spiritually healthy. They consider themselves to be 
righteous. They consider themselves to be good, to be holy, to be set apart. They were completely um, convinced of those truths for their own lives. It was even a common practice among them that if you really wanted to be pure before God, is that you would stay away from sinners. They're unclean, they're unrighteous, they're unholy, and if we want to be pure before God, then we need to keep a stiff arm and ignore them because God is watching. And if we interact with the lost, if we interact with those sinners, then God will also deem that we are unclean. See, they believed as Pharisees that when Messiah would come, because they've been promised the Messiah now for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they've been looking for Messiah. Yet the Jewish people believe this, that they believe that when the Messiah would come, is that, that he would actually honor, set apart, acknowledge the righteous, and immediately punish the sinner. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, and, and, and he begins to declare forgiveness not to the self-perceived righteous, but to the sinner, to the tax collector, to the wanderer. When Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to say, you are forgiven to those type of people, I want you to understand the turmoil and tension that we live inside of 2016 that we often lose. Is immediately that destroys the Pharisees' theology. It destroys their entire belief system. Messiah comes. Wait till Messiah comes. When Messiah comes, we're going to be the ones. Immediately, you know, when you're caught doing what you're doing, when the Messiah comes, he is going to destroy you. But us, the righteous ones, the goody goodies, those who exert self-effort in, in pleasing and puring God out of our own desires and motives, he is going to reward us. Yet, when Jesus shows up, that is not what he does. He says to the tax collector, while being surrounded by scribes and Pharisees, you follow me. And that's what he does. That's what he does. In verse 13, Jesus continues, doesn't he? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can I nerd out on you just for a second? But in pretty much all, all the books that I've read this week in, re, in this passage and just heard some different talking on it and different things, was that phrase that I would have probably skipped over very quickly, and it was this, go and learn what this means. Supposedly, that was kind of a rabbi dig. I don't think that Jesus probably said it with, you know, a sour face. But it was definitely a dig to those listeners. Again, who are we talking to? Scribes? Pharisees. The scribes were the PhD-leveled Pharisees. They're falling in this crowd of hurt people and sick people, and people are just curious about Jesus. And, and Jesus slightly looks at these individuals who think they have all of this knowledge. They're, brothers and sisters, there's not a person in this room that knows the Bible better than these scribes and Pharisees. 
And yet, when Jesus looks at them, he says, hey, you need to go and you need to learn this. Can you imagine what that does to a person who thinks they know it all? And that's what the scribes and Pharisees believe. Man, we know it all. And so Jesus tells them, he says, you need to go and learn this. You know all of this stuff, right? But you're missing this. And this is what you need to go and learn. And what does Jesus say? He quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Hosea is a great story in the Old Testament. I encourage you to read it. And though I believe that it's primarily about a, a husband and a wife, which is very, um, just a, an amazing, powerful story that we don't have time to go into this morning, but very quick synopsis of this book is Hosea is a man of God. And he is told by God, okay, he is, this doesn't mean if you're single in here that this gives you permission to go do this, but he is told to go marry a prostitute. It's believed, and you watch this story of, of this man who at all costs loves his bride, though she gives him children, and yet she will leave him and, and ends up on the slave block selling herself in prostitution, and Hosea, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus, I preach it often. Jesus shows up on the scene, or excuse me, Hosea shows up on the scene, and he buys his own wife off of the prostitution block and continues to lavish grace and mercy in her life. It's believed as well that it's not just a real story between a husband and a wife, but it's also a story about God and the church, or God and the Israelites that he loves them, that he has given his life for them, and yet they continue to wander away, selling themselves to sin, Satan, and death over and over again, and yet what does God do? What does Jesus do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Buys them off the block. And Jesus ultimately does that for his bride by dying upon the cross and defeating that slavery and bondage through the power of of the resurrection. But we kind of get this picture of, of, of when Jesus is saying this, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire these things. So when, when Jesus tells us, when we experience this story, when we hear the truth of God's Word today, I think that there are several things that, that we really need to pull out and really need to marinate on and think about in regards to our own lives as well. What does this have to do with us? Quickly, it says this, or I'm, I, I would say if I had a point number one, this is what it would be. One is what does this scripture reveal about us? What does this scripture reveal about us? Brothers and sisters, we need to understand something very quickly, and we, we need to understand something very intently. We need to press into this truth. This truth is that all of us are, are Matthew. That all of us are in some way engrossed in sin. Now, it may not be a, you're not a, a professional criminal. You may not be oppressing poor people. You may not be stealing. You may not be an extortionist. 
but that everyone who has gathered here this morning is a lot like Matthew in, in many, many, many ways. And I ask you this question this morning, what did Jesus see in Matthew that he didn't see in everyone else around him? Nothing. What he saw in Matthew is exactly what he saw in all of those people around them. His sin may have been different. His sin may have been public. But one thing is different. Matthew was not special. Matthew has probably been around Capernaum. He probably lived there. He had seen Jesus do these miraculous things. But in no way do we see a picture of, of Matthew um, following after Jesus up until this point. Even when Jesus walks by him, he's sitting down. He's at work. The man is in the midst of sinning. He's in the midst of doing something horribly wrong, and, and Jesus walks. He is in the standing position, the position of authority. And as this man is sinning, Jesus sees his heart as he sees all of these other people's hearts standing around him, and he notices, guess what, that they are lost, that Matthew is lost, but I have a specific calling for him. I have a desire for him. If you were saved this morning, brothers and sisters, what good did Jesus see in you? What good did Jesus see in me? See, the sovereignty of God and the power of his word is a place of great humility. If any of us are saved this morning, none of us should be you know, dusting our shoulders off thinking, man, we have done great. Why, would not God, why wouldn't God save me? Have you seen how awesome I am? And yet for those of us who have truly been saved this morning, we know that there was no good in us. That we are like Matthew. That we are like the crowd. And yet what does Matthew do when Jesus calls him to follow him? The Bible tells us that he leaves everything behind. Is Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth saying, Hey Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? No. Jesus shows up. Does, does Matthew say in that moment, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I repent of my sins. Forgive me. Does, does he say that? No. God shows up on the scene. Notice that when Jesus called fishermen to follow him, after his death, what are the fishermen found doing? Fishing. What does Matthew do? He can't go back to being a tax collector. Why? Because even that position is a sin. All right? It's like if you've got a friend that's a stripper, and I hope you do if you're a girl, all right? And you're witnessing to her, and she becomes a Christian. I heard this story once about a, a church where they began to really reach the unreachable, the untouchables in their city. And lo and behold, a, a, one of the people there um, she was a stripper, and she became a Christian. And for weeks after that, in the offering bag, they kept getting these crumpled up dollar bills. Week after week after week after week. And finally, they were in small group or something, and they were talking about this in a group. And the girl ended up saying, well, that's my offering. And they asked her, well, how'd you get that? And she's like, I, I'm a stripper. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm still doing that. Because she was so freshly saved that she didn't even know that was, still, that was inappropriate. So she continued to do that and then was tithing and giving offerings from her job. All right? Now, I think that seems silly. But at least she was being faithful in doing that. Somebody counseled her. Obviously, she left. I think she ended up marrying a guy there at the church, and he was a pastor. He ended up being one of the pastors. What does Matthew do? He can't go back to being a tax collector. This is a wretched position. What does he do? No, he leaves everything, brothers and sisters. He, he leaves his wealth. He, he leaves his big house. He leaves his, his, his job, his connections, his, his political connections to the Romans. He, he leaves all of that stuff behind compared to following Jesus or to holding on to that stuff, whatever that sin may be. What a picture of repentance is not something that he said with his mouth. It was something he did with his life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It changed everything in his life. Matthew couldn't go back fishing because fishing isn't sinful. Amen for me. But oppressing and stealing from people is. He had to leave that. A lot of times in pastoring you and pastoring people, and I'm dealing, wrestling with people who are really wrestling in deep-rooted sins in their lives. Addicts, abusers, people who can't seem to shake it. Sometimes it's a girlfriend, sometimes it's a boyfriend, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's a mixture of all of those things. Sometimes it's pornography, any of those things. When I'm sitting down with these people and we're working through that, we're praying through that, you will often hear me say this statement. Is this confession... Or is this repentance? And after they say some things, I usually will say something like this. We'll see. We'll see which one this is. Now, is confession bad? No, the Bible says confess your sins, one of the Lord. We need to verbally confess. All right? But repentance, brothers and sisters, is not something that we do with our mouths. It is something we do with our lives. Do you get that? Repentance, true biblical repentance, isn't something you do with your mouth. Isn't something you sign on a piece of paper. True repentance happens when you do something with your life. See, Jesus did not come to edify the good and the righteous. Because what does the Bible tell us? That no one is righteous. No one isn't sick. We've all been Given this sinful nature, every one of us are extremely ill. We are dead in our trespasses. And no matter how good we think we can be, we only can become righteous when we compare our righteousness to other human beings. But when we compare our righteousness to God's righteousness, we will quickly realize that we are not righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. And I am one of them. And so are you. And so are you. And Jesus has come to save those people, the unrighteous. Jesus has come to save the sick, the prostitute, the lost, the thief, the murderer, the, the, the guy who is a goody, goody, the Pharisee, the guy who, who prays to be heard, to preach to be heard. He has come to save every one of those people whom he so chooses to do so. Brothers and sisters, we do not come to Christ on our own terms, but we come to Christ on His terms. On His terms. 
We know that Matthew's life was forever changed, don't we? Because Matthew wrote the book that we're reading. Years later, Matthew had grown in his relationship with the Lord. He had eyewitness accounts of all of these things. He had a letter from a guy named Mark. He had probably some other manuscripts of well from people who are writing down the, these witnessing accounts of Jesus. And Matthew ends up writing this letter. And why does Matthew write this letter? So that other people would come to know Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God knows you. Like Jesus knows you. See, I know about you. I know what I see from you. Jesus knows everything about you. Jesus knows the inconsistencies of your discipleship. Jesus knows the inconsistencies of your, your, your worship through song this morning. Jesus knows your heart behind those things. He, he knows the, the inner corridors of your heart and your being and your mind. He knows what, what you believe only you know. And yet Jesus knows those things. He knows what you did last night. Maybe a secret to me. But it is not a secret to him. He knew everything about Matthew. He knew how he had oppressed those people, how he had probably squandered that money on, on probably more prostitutes. He did whatever he could to gain more, and yet when Jesus came along his way, he walked away from all of those things because Jesus had changed him. What does this say to us as the church? How does this scripture encourage us as the church this morning? One of the major questions that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do we care like for sinners like Jesus does? Do we care for sinners like Jesus does? He tells the religious people, go and learn this. What does it mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The, the Hebrew term there for mercy means steadfast love. The term sacrifice there has to do with like uh, religious rituals. So Jesus is saying to them, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I, I'm desiring that you have steadfast love for people, for the Matthews, for the, the thieves, for, for the murderers, for, for the, the, those who are treason, for the liars, all, all of those things. I desire that you have love and compassion for those people, for those lost people, more than I want you to go through the religious cycle of doing what, what Christians do, doing what the Jews do. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, there's a similar discrepancy that is happening in God's people. And this is what God says to him. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the, the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Our worship is empty if not combined with genuine repentance, godly living, and caring for sinners around us. It is manipulation of men 
in an attempt to manipulate God. See, brothers and sisters, we must ask ourselves, and this is very convicting to me, there are, uh, we must get this. We must have a strong rootedness in the Word of God. There is no doubt in that. But brothers and sisters of Mission Church, we must ask ourselves this morning, how does that transfer into loving kindness and care for the sinner that you work with, for the person that you live next door? Jesus is telling you, man, I require this. This is what you need to go learn this. Man, you, you, you got all the John Piper books down. You know Hebrew and Greek. You know Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You listen to Chris Tomlin. You got an ESV study Bible. You listen to Beth Moore if you're a female. All these sorts of things, or maybe a dude. I don't know. But you have all of this stuff. You've got Christian radio. You've got more books on me. You've got all these commentaries. You have all of this wealth of knowledge. But yet, those things are great and grand. And the Scripture will tell us we need to study God's Word. But if it is not transferring to a loving compassion for the lost, the mission church, we are missing it. Our worship is in vain this morning. We're, we're missing the very mission of God. If we can just group together and we call it discipleship, in which that can be a course, but who's the non-Christian that you're discipling this morning? Who's the, who's the lost person? Who's the person that is in immense sin that you were walking alongside of with preaching the gospel all the day, all the day, all the day, all the day with. We need to disciple other believers. But if we are, are using that excuse and not reaching out to the lost next to us, but for sake of only discipling other Christians, I don't want you to know that I'm deeply convinced that we are mistaken in our interpretation of the Scripture. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, you got the knowledge but you don't care about the Matthews. And you've got all of this. Learn, Jesus is saying, learn to have steadfast love for sinners. Man, may we be a church and a people, man, that ministers to the prostitutes of our city. And if you don't believe that they exist in our city, come ride with some of us through downtown. We can show you where they work. We're about the drug house, two or three houses down for the program living house. Or the wealthy man who's embezzling money and cheating on his wife. Or the guy and the gal in this room who lives a double life. Mission Church, we have to be a people who cares for those people. You have humility and patience with those Matthews, with those women at the well. Brothers and sisters, do we simply have a lot of knowledge? But if that knowledge doesn't lead to compassion, what good is that knowledge? Jesus has come for the spiritually sick. His call is effective. See, when Jesus wants somebody to be saved, they're saved. It happens. 
It's an effectual call. It's not a stagnant call. When he does that in a very specific way through the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes those people's lives. But I think what often happens within our churches of why we don't have compassion for those lost people is that we forget that we were those lost people. We used to sing this song, and there's this one line in this song that I've been wrestling with all morning long, and it's this. You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. See, Jesus knows all those things about you. And yet, Jesus saves those people. And so when we can be reminded of that this morning, then we can in turn engage faithfully in God's mission to show people love because we were shown people love. May we not be a church that becomes arrogant on knowledge. while not having a heart for the lost and undone and sick spiritually. Every one of us in this room need a Matthew. Someone who today is far away from Him, but yet through the preaching and the means of the Gospel being proclaimed through your life and through your lips and through your friendship, may God save many. Maybe you're lost this morning. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Stop hiding. Come to Him. Maybe as a church this morning, we need to repent for our disobedience. Because Jesus forgives all when He forgives. Past, present, and future. It's a done deal. And that's good news this morning. And I never want us to become so arrogant to think that God still isn't in the forgiving business of people. Let's face it, we all have a certain type of person out there that we think is completely disgusting and out of our reach because we've placed them there. But may we be reminded this morning they are not outside of the reach of God and His mercy and His forgiveness because they are wretched and so are we. The only difference is, for those of us who have been saved, is salvation. This moment, let's take a moment. Let's take a moment to bow our head, to meditate on these truths, to pray, to ask for forgiveness, maybe sins that we've committed, and to prepare our hearts for communion. Let's take a moment.